We have all witnessed many situations that would have turned out much better if only a little wisdom had been utilized. The employee who gets mad at his boss and so he blows up and he yells at him only to get fired. Or the person who's pulled over by a police officer and is upset and starts swearing and threatening only to wind up spending the night in jail. Or the student who is given an assignment for a research paper and doesn't like it and so goes to the teacher and says, this is stupid. How could you expect me to write on this? Only to be given back the paper upon its completion with a failing grade. Very often, we see a lack of wisdom exacerbate what was a small problem and turn it into a major problem. This happens pretty regularly in the realm of athletics both with coaches and players. I recently read an account from a high school basketball referee about a game in a state playoff in Indiana between high school girls. Listen to what he writes. During the pregame warm-ups, I noticed that a player had tape on her ears. So I asked her if she is covering earrings with the tape. She says yes. I inform her that I cannot make her remove her earrings, but she cannot play while wearing them. Ninety seconds later, her coach comes to me and says, Why are you harassing my player about her earrings? Me. I did no such thing. I told her that I couldn't make her remove her earrings, but I would not allow her to play while wearing them. The coach. The officials let her play in the game last night. Me. I can't comment about the officials in your game last night, but the jewelry rule is a safety rule that cannot be waived. Coach, the game is about the girls, not you. Me. Coach, you're absolutely correct. The game is about the girls, and you and I have a responsibility to make sure that the players are able to play under safe conditions. Coach, you're an idiot. <laughs> That's where wisdom would have helped. The referee. Coach, I may be an idiot, but your opponent is going to start the game with two free throws and the ball at the half-court line while you lost the privilege of walking in the coaching box for the entire game. He gives him a technical. Coach, you can't tee me up. The game hasn't even started. Referee. Yes, I can, and I just did. Coach, next you're going to tell me that you can throw me out of the game before it even starts. Referee. Yes, coach, that could happen. Coach, if you think you can throw me out of the game before it even starts, you're a bigger idiot than I thought. You know where it's going. <laughs> Referee, I am a bigger idiot than you thought because you're no longer in the game. Please leave the facility immediately. Coach, what? Me, the referee, to the assistant coach. Please give your coach or have your coach leave the gym immediately. Assistant coach, I can't do that. Referee, sure you can because you are now the team's head coach. Assistant coach, I can't do that. Referee, sure you can or your opponent will win the game by forfeit. He said the entire exchange took about 90 seconds, occurred less than five minutes before the start of the game, and this coach took a little thing and without wisdom blew it up into a major Event. Have you ever wondered about 
things that have happened in your life that could have gone much differently, much better if you'd only exercised a little wisdom. Very often, little problems would never have blown up into big problems if there had only been some discretion and exercise of wisdom. The Bible makes this point to us repeatedly in the ways that it encourages us to pursue wisdom. In fact, one of the major genres of the Scripture is called wisdom or wisdom literature. There are four specific books in the Old Testament that are designated wisdom literature. We have been working our way through one of them over the last few months. And as Jared mentioned, today we're coming back to Ecclesiastes to pick up where we left off last week by looking at the 8th chapter of the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is our text this morning. It's found on page 557. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the chair in front of you. I want to read the whole chapter with you this morning and then consider what it has to say to us about the value as well as the limitations of wisdom. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read out loud, beginning in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. Who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what, he is, what is to be, for who can tell him how it, how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. 
through his reflections on various circumstances of life and the counsel that he gives. Koalit, which is the Hebrew name of the author of this book, probably Solomon, a name which means teacher or preacher. He shows us both the benefits and the limitations of wisdom. He picks up on this theme that he had introduced in the prior chapters we saw last week from verses 19, 23, and 24 of chapter 7. But what we're going to see this week in chapter 8 is he elaborates that theme by teaching us that wisdom does indeed enable you to live well in this world, but wisdom cannot explain everything in this world. Wisdom is helpful in order to live well. It will help you live well. The first seven verses spell this out as we have a variety of ways in which the author extols the benefit of wisdom. He starts in verse 1 with a proverb to the value of wisdom. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. These rhetorical questions, the first two questions in verse 1, are designed to imply an answer of no one and only a wise person. Only wisdom can help in these situations. This last sentence, however, is a little bit enigmatic. It could be referring to the face of the king, which is the whole context as we see in verse 2. So that the point could be that when a person exercises wisdom in the, part of the, in the presence of a king, then the king's face shines and the king's face loses its hardness. Now that certainly has happened and it does happen and it may well be the intent of the author at this point. You read in Genesis chapter 41 where the exact thing took place that would be described if that's the meaning. In Genesis 41 we have Joseph who is in prison in Egypt and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has two dreams None of his wise men, none of his magician can explain the dreams to him. And then Joseph is called from prison and through the wisdom given to him from God tells the king his dream. And not only that, charts out a plan about what to do over the next 14 years in light of what's coming up in Egypt. And so you read in Genesis 41 at the beginning of the chapter that Pharaoh's spirit was troubled so he was downcast. He was weighed down by this dream. And then you read in verse 37, the end of the chapter, that Pharaoh is now pleased. Why? Well, because in wisdom that God had given to Joseph, the king's face was made to shine and the hardness of his face changed. Though in the verses that follow, the preacher is talking specifically about situations that involve service to a king, being a part of the court of a king, what he says applies to any situation in which you find yourself dealing with an appropriate authority. Whether that's a parent over you as a child, whether that's a teacher over you at a classroom, a boss who has your authority over you at work, or a policeman, or a judge, or coach, a referee, or there could be any other, any, any number of possibilities about the relationship of an authority to one who is under that authority. Exercising wisdom in your relationship with 
proper authorities will serve you well. It will help you, whether that authority is police, boss, judge, coach, or referee. When we come to terms with the fact that God himself has established authority in the world, and that all of us are under authority in various ways, and that God intends for us to live well under authority, then we will seek the wisdom in order to do so. Look at some of the specific ways that the author commends wisdom, the wisdom that God calls us to exercise in our relationships. We see that wisdom calls us to exercise deference and patience toward those who are over us in authority. He says, be obedient, keep the king's command, verse 2. That is, defer to the king, defer to the person who has rightful authority over you. Why? Because of God's oath to him. Now the grammar in that little phrase, because of God's oath to him, is ambiguous. That is, it can be taken in different ways. It could refer to because of your oath to God. Or it could be because of God's oath to the king, or the king's oath to God, as the ESV puts it, God's oath to the king. The point is that every legitimate authority exists because of God and must take into account God. Every legitimate authority has been appointed by God. That's an important lesson for us to remember as we make our way through this world. Paul spells it out very clearly in Romans chapter 13. The first couple of verses where he writes this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Parents, one of the most important lessons you can teach your children is to respect authority. To recognize God has woven authority into the world. And part of their world is having you as a parent. But for you to try to teach your child to respect your authority as a parent while you live disregarding proper authorities over you is to set your child up to acknowledge hypocrisy and to reject the very thing that you're wanting to teach. But if you don't teach your children to respect authority, you can be sure that somebody in this world will. It, it may be somebody who really doesn't care about them. It may be a policeman. It may be a judge. It may be a drill sergeant. But somebody will teach your children authority. You, you know, when I get pulled over by a police officer, maybe I should say, if I ever get pulled over by a police officer, <clears throat> I do my best to immediately put myself in a position of deferring to his or her authority. Now, you know, I'm at a stage of life now where most policemen that I deal with are younger than me. And so it would be tempting to think, you know, you just hadn't lived long enough. You don't understand the, the circumstances. But when I'm thinking rightly, I put myself under authority immediately. And when they issue some lawful command, I obey it. I'm very careful to, before making any move to tell them my wallet's in my back right pocket. And I'll be glad to get it because that's where my driver's license is. But I'm doing what they say. They're in control and there's this posture of submission and deference to them. I think that's right and good. 
I think that kind of wisdom would keep a lot of problems that might be little at the beginning from escalating into something that could be disastrous. The author goes on to say in verse 3 that we shouldn't immediately run away from the one in authority. Be not hasty to go from his presence. In other words, don't try to squirm your way out of being under authority. Recognize if it's lawful authority, this is where God has you. And acknowledge that. Don't break God's commandments, he goes on to say. Don't take your stand in an evil cause. What is an evil cause? Anything that is evil is contrary to what God himself has revealed in his word. So he says, don't participate in any scheme that is contrary to God's will, whether it comes from the king, from the one in authority, or whether it comes from your own mind or others. So your submission to authority has limits. If a lawful authority tries to require you to do something contrary to what God has clearly said, well, then you must respectfully refuse at that point. He says that we are not to thoughtlessly challenge the one who has authority over us. Who may say to him, verse 4, what are you doing? I mean, that's the point, is, is that he has the right to do what he's doing. In verses 5, 6, and 7, we're admonished to patiently work for what is good. In verse 5, it is a wise heart that will know the proper time and the just way. Verse 6, for there is a time and a way for everything, as we saw in the opening verses of chapter 3. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. What he's saying here is, choose your battles wisely. Decide, is this a hill worth dying on? Or is this something I should just let go? Or in the words that Kenny Rogers made famous, you need to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Know when to walk away, know when to run. Exercise wisdom in how you make your decisions in those kinds of situations. Learn when to speak, when to be quiet. And look for an opportune occasion to make your case known. Even, as verse 6 says in the last part, even if trouble lies heavy on you. Even if you're really convicted about this. Even if this is really important to you. Sometimes you can be so burdened by a matter that it troubles you and you might feel like you've got to do something right now. Well, wisdom will cause you to stop, to pause, to exercise restraint, even while remaining burdened. It will lead you to be deferential, to be patient, not to run away because it's hard, and not to violate God's commandments because that might be expedient. Wisdom will help you to think about how to act in the right way at the right time. And we see this in the life of Esther in the Old Testament. She was a Jewish exile and in God's providence was raised to the position of queen of Persia, married to King Ahasuerus. And one of the servants of King Ahasuerus, a wicked man by the name of Haman, plotted to destroy all of the Jews. This plot was made known and Esther was called upon to do something about it because she was next to the king. She was familiar with him. And so Esther had to act. And it was a 
an urgent matter. It was an important matter. It weighed heavily upon her and upon the other Jews. And yet she was patient. You read the story in the book of Esther. And you'll see how she gains the king's ear. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, just come to a banquet that I'll prepare for you and Haman. And then he says, now tell me what you want me to do. Well, just come again to another time when I'll prepare. She's patient. She's waiting until the opportune moment when she makes it known the king had just discovered that this Mordecai, who was a leader of the Jews, had done something great for him years past that he had not acknowledged. And so when he discovered that Haman wanted to kill Mordecai and all the Jews, Haman was the one who wound up being hung on the very gallows that he had constructed to kill Mordecai. You see the wisdom of God moving throughout that story as Esther was patient, was deferential, and sought to do the right thing at the right time. We, we see this in the life of Jesus as well. I mean, Jesus did things prudently. He did things thoughtfully, wisely. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27, we have an occasion described when there was an attempt to set him against the religious structures of the day. So we read, when they came, Jesus and his disciples, to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, and said to him, does your teacher not pay the tax? He's trying to start a problem, a controversy. Peter said yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from and when he said that, Peter said, from others. Jesus said to them, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now think about this. At that time, the worship, Judaistic worship surrounding the temple was corrupt. It was keeping people from God. It needed to be overthrown. It was going to be overthrown. That's why Jesus was on earth. But Jesus is patient. He made very clear he could have protested having to pay the temple tax to support that corrupt system, but he didn't. He was deferential. He bided his time. Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of wisdom that we need to exercise in our daily lives, especially as we relate to those who have proper authority over us. We need to learn self-restraint. We need to practice self-control. We need to read God's word and pay attention to what it says about how we should live. We should read the book of Proverbs that you heard the first chapter of this morning and consider what it says about how we should speak with wisdom, how we should relate to people wisely. How we should think wisely, plan wisely, work wisely. Study the life of Jesus. He's wisdom personified. See how he dealt with different people in different ways. How he treated people. See how he responded to obvious blessings as well as severe trials. Study the life of his disciples in the book of Acts, in the New Testament letters, and see how they handled difficulties as well as wonderful blessings and opportunities and pray that God will create this increased thirst and hunger for wisdom in your own life wisdom is beneficial 
it will help us to live well in this world and we ought to seek to grow in it. However, this chapter goes on to say that wisdom cannot explain everything. Wisdom will not ultimately make your life work. As valuable as it is, it cannot answer all of our questions, much less can it guarantee all of the outcomes that we might desire for our lives. Wisdom can't know the future, and it can't even control the present. We see this in verses 7, 8, and 9. We can make our plans, and we can do so based upon our best judgments. But as verse 7 says, a man does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? How many times have your plans been changed by unforeseen circumstances? You, you thought, you were careful, you set everything in motion. It looks like this is exactly the way it ought to work. It can work, and you're convinced it will work. And something happens. It rains. Or you get sick. Or somebody has a severe trial that you need to go attend to. Or some other opportunity arises. That's simply reality. That's just life. And no amount of wisdom can change that. This is why James admonishes us the way that he does in his little letter in the back of the New Testament in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Listen to what he says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. To plan your life as if you know for certain what your future will be is failing to take into account the reality that you live in a world that is fallen. It is the failure to take into account that God is the one who is sovereign over your life, not you. So humility then dictates that we learn not only to say, but to live with this thought, if the Lord wills, and we entrust our future to Him. Wisdom can't cause you to know the future for certain neither can wisdom cause you to control the present in verses 8 and 9 he gives several examples then to prove this you can't control your life for even one day you can't guarantee the day of your death he says no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death the word spirit and wind is the same, and so he might be saying nobody has the ability to stop the wind on any certain day, but it could be talking about the spirit of your own life, the breath that keeps you alive. You can't retain it infallibly. You don't have the power over the day of your death. He goes on to say when you're drafted in a war by governmental authorities, you can't just simply walk away. You can't say, I'm, I'm tired of this. I'm just going to quit. There is no discharge from war, verse 8 says. And then he says, not even those who wickedly try to manipulate people and all the resources that they can get their hands on for their own benefit, 
Even they cannot guarantee their lives for one day. Nor will wickedness, verse 8 says, deliver those who are given to it. Corlett says that these are the things that he has observed as he examined all that is done under the sun when man had power over man for his hurt. And then he says, looking at injustices and inequities of life, he was further convinced that we cannot know the future and we cannot control the present, no matter how wise you are. Now, you would think that this point would be rather self-evident. And yet, ask yourself, is this really the way I live? I mean, am I conscious of thinking if the Lord wills? I make my vacation plans. I make my retirement plans. I make my job plans. And then something changes and, and they completely go another direction. And the temptation is to feel betrayed or to feel somehow slighted or like you have failed. When in reality, brothers and sisters, we need to do the best we can and submit all of that to the Lord's will. If the Lord's will. If we consciously would remind ourselves that our lives, the lives of our friends, the lives of our family, our loved ones are not guaranteed, but rather are in God's hands. It would help us to live better in this world in submission to God and in dependence upon God. He's the one who's given us all that we have. And he's the one who can take it away at the time of his choosing. Psalm 139 recognizes this as it extols God for his sovereignty, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. It says in verse 16, your eyes, speaking to God, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Do you hear what he's saying? Every day of my life was written in God's book before the first day of my life ever took place. Every day of our lives. The day of your birth, God wrote it before you were born. The day of your death, God has written it. And it will come to pass on precisely that day. You and I don't know that day. God does. And because this is true, doesn't it make sense to live as George Whitfield, the great evangelist, said we ought to live that every man is immortal until it is his appointed day to die? You're not going to die a day earlier. And so doesn't that, on the one hand, relieve you of the fear and the worry that sometimes can attend our lives when we realize our lives are in God's hands? We ought to do the best we can and be careful in how we live and be wise and prudent. But we know that all of our best efforts cannot guarantee one day more. This is what makes Jesus' story that he told about a rich farmer so poignant. He tells a story in Luke chapter 12. Let me just read it to you. He says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. That's a great problem to have, isn't it? And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, 
drink. Be merry. Jesus said, but God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And these things you've prepared, whose will they be? So it is with one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I've got my life planned out. This is what I'm going to do. Everything is all arrayed. When the reality is you can't know the future, you can't control the present. And as Jesus puts it, if you are not rich toward God, what will you then do? Are you rich toward God? By that, are you rightly related to God? That's what Jesus means. Have you come to know God and be reconciled to God in the way that God has provided? You've taken care of everything else in your life. You've prepared for your next week, your next year, maybe for life after work. You've prepared for a move. You've prepared for marriage. You've prepared for a child. Have you prepared in your relationship to your creator? Are you prepared to meet him? What will you do when you meet him? What will you do when you're called to give an account of your life to the one who gave you life? If on that day, all you can point to is your bumper crops and your bigger barns. On that day, what Jesus quotes God as saying to this farmer will be said to you, you fool. You made all these preparations. And yet you're poor in your relationship to me. Friend, if you have not come to know God, you haven't come to be reconciled to God, hear the good news this morning that God sent his son into the world to save people like you and me. That he gave up his son so that you and I could be rich toward God. So that we can be reconciled to him and have from him grace and mercy and forgiveness. And be joined to him through faith forever. If you will turn away from your sin today and acknowledge that you have been living foolishly, wrongly, contrary to his will. And ask him to show you mercy and grace and trust his son. He will make you rich toward God. Wisdom cannot know the future or control the present. He goes on in verses 10 through 15 and he says, wisdom cannot eliminate injustices in the world. In verse 10, this is a, an interesting sight that he describes where wicked people are welcomed into what's supposed to be holy places and then they are praised at their funerals. L listen to verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. We see that today, don't we? We see wicked people being hailed by those who are supposedly religious leaders as being spiritual and rightly related to God and never challenged or encouraged to be reconciled to God but assumed that they are okay with God. So they're welcomed into holy places. And then, what happens at funerals? Have you ever been to a funeral of a person who lived his or her, her life in conscious rebellion to God? Resisting every effort 
to set before them the way of reconciliation to God. And then at a funeral, here it described as well, at least they're in a better place. It's as if we believe in justification by death. All you have to do to be accepted by God is die. The preacher knew that wasn't true. I hope you know that's not true. To be accepted by God, you must find grace and mercy from God. And God gives grace and mercy in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came. And you can be reconciled to God through Christ today. Today. Well, as Colet considers this reality, he said, it's vanity. It's meaningless. He goes on in verse 11 to describe justice is often delayed, and when it is, it emboldens those who are set on doing evil. We see this in our court systems, don't we? Someone commits a heinous crime, and the trial gets pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and so years separate the trial from the horrible crime, and then there's the trial that may last for months, and then maybe more months before there's a judgment, and then once the judgment is made, the, there's petitions to be filed, and then after the petitions, when Finally, the judgment is settled. It is years before the judgment is carried out. And we wonder, why is there no deterrent on evil activity? Well, the Bible knows why. Whenever justice is delayed, it emboldens those who are set upon doing evil. In verse 12, he says, sometimes a sinner can do evil a hundred times and prolong his life. It can look like He's prospering as he goes headlong into sin. But wisdom, though it cannot right the injustice of wickedness prospering in this world, knows that in the end, ultimately, it will not go well with the wicked because they do not fear God. That's verses 12 and 13. So here, Koalith is telling us that he has some sense that there's going to be a day when everything's made right. Some sense of judgment that will come at the end. And of course, in the New Testament, we have that elaborated that yes, those who seem to prosper in their wickedness in this life are facing a day of judgment that will result in a condemnation forever in the life to come. Sometimes wicked people are treated like the righteous deserve to be treated, and righteous people are treated like the wicked deserve to be treated. Look at verse 14. He says, here's another vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said, this also is vanity. That's not the way the world's supposed to work. We know that, right? God has wired us with a sense of justice. And this is not just. So what should be our response to this? If wisdom cannot eliminate justice from the world, then why should we even concern ourselves with trying to live wisely. If it's a rigged game, no matter what we do, injustice still exists, then why don't we all just quit and forget about ever hoping to see things made right in this world? I mean, that seems to be a logical option, doesn't it? Given what we have been shown here that the preacher observed in his pursuit of wisdom. And yet that option is the exact opposite of what Koalith commends. In the light of these realities, 
about the limitations of wisdom. Listen to the counsel that he gives in verse 15. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Did you hear that? Eat. Drink. Be joyful. There's nothing better under the sun than that. Isn't that a surprising conclusion? Isn't that something that takes us a little bit off guard? What is he commending here? Is he saying just go ahead and live however you want to live. Be careless. Be fatalistic. That's not what he's saying. A careless fatalism is exactly what the Apostle Paul condemns in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's saying, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then it doesn't matter how we live. Verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if there's no resurrection, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That is not what Koalith is saying. Those are two different approaches to the world. The preacher here is not saying that we should just pursue pleasure for pleasure's sake. No, he's saying, look, Here's what we must do. You must learn to enjoy this world. Enjoy the life God's given you in the light of its brokenness, in the light of the wisdom that he's provided, in the light of his goodness, his grace, his mercy, as you walk in faith and in fear toward him. We're being encouraged to enjoy the life that the Lord has provided for us, recognizing that this world is indeed fallen, that our wisdom cannot fully understand it, much less fix it. And rather than ignore the realities of life in a fallen world, or being overwhelmed by such realities, we should remember God. We should remember He's the Creator. We should trust Him. We should look to Him for grace and mercy and enjoy the good things that He's placed in our hands. He says it. Did you see it? This is the life that God has given to us. So in essence, He's saying, brothers and sisters, don't expect more from this world than it can deliver. But do not miss out on all the good things this life has to offer you as you wisely live in it. Nicola says, as I applied myself night and day to, to sort out all this, to pursue wisdom, verse 17, he says, when it comes to trying to understand all of this, all the work of God, man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In other words, there's some things you're not going to figure out. Don't let those things keep you from the things that God has revealed. And the world is created by God for us to bring glory to Him. Our lives have been made by God or held in His hand, and He calls us to enjoy Him as we live in this world. We ought to seek to live with joy. Not blind to the world. Not thinking this is everything that our hearts could ever want for. No, this is temporary. But there's goodness here. And there's opportunity to find real joy here. And we shouldn't be afraid of that. Even as we acknowledge there's a whole lot of things that aren't the way they're supposed to be that we just don't figure out. We can't understand. But this is the life that God has given us. Wisdom is valuable. But it's limited. It can help you live well in the world, but it cannot explain everything in the world. 
Some things simply haven't been made known to us and are beyond us. But the things that have been revealed to us are enough to enable us to live in joy. That's what God's word commends to us, to be joyful people in this fallen world. Brothers and sisters, can you honestly say that you're enjoying the life that God has given you? You're enjoying the things he puts into your hands? Enjoying them without turning them into idols so that whenever they're taken out of your hand, you feel crushed, lost, destroyed? Are you learning to rest in the limitations of what you can know and control? Fear God. Trust God. Trust the provisions that he makes for you and enjoy the life he's given you. That's what he calls us to do in living wisely in this fallen world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way that you speak to us in your word about these practical matters. And We must confess this morning that so often we're tempted to, to think that we can figure everything out, that we can line up things and plan in such a way that everything's going to work just perfectly. We can control our lives. And other times we're tempted to think that because so much is beyond us, we should just throw our hands up and forget about it. Help us to see what you showed the preacher. And help us to look for the joy that he commended in living the life that you've given us. A joy that is rooted in fearing you as God, trusting you as our Father, relying upon you for all that we need. We want to live that way. And we pray that your spirit would help us to live that way so that we might be able to commend you and the provisions of your grace in Jesus Christ to others. So hear our prayer, for Jesus' sake. Amen.